Welcome back for another episode of the 212 Podcast. If you like the dulcet sounds of my dull and monotone voice, please give us a like and subscribe on all your normal platforms. Our next guest this week is an absolute screamer, literally. He is the lead singer of the alt-rock, a dubstep, post-core, and whatever other box you want to put the band in, enter Shikari. He has also used his platform in the music industry to address political issues such as climate change. As well as this, he has had a clothing brand, a record label, as well as writing books. He is the rock and roll flint starting fires in all the right areas. Please welcome to the podcast, Rao Reynolds. How are you and where are you today? I am very well. Thank you for having me. I am in sunny Norfolk in the east of England at a studio, knuckling down, trying to write some music uh, after all this craziness we've, we've been through. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of music coming out in 2021, 2022, 2023. I'm sure there's going to be loads of it coming out. So you're, you're in Norfolk at the moment. Where where did you actually grow up? Was it around that area? or? Well, I, I've got quite a lot of links to Norfolk, but I'm from St Albans, which is a well, essentially a city just outside London, just in, in, in the north of London. And yeah, then moved into into London uh, for the last sort of 10, 10, 15 years. Yeah, but I'm, my my granddad was born in Norfolk, and and my name is actually from the village that that he was born in. So so I often find myself back up in Norfolk. I have to ask the question: Row not Rue? Uh, where does the Row come from? Is that your actual? Is that a shortened version of your your full name? Yeah. So the village is called Rowton, basically, but. Not even my mum calls me that. <laughs> you know, normally people say it's the, only their mum can call them their full name. But um, yeah, and no, I've I've been sort of roused as uh, as long as I can I can remember. What was what was your parents? I mean, you said you spoke about your granddad there and 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 your and your mum. But what was it like growing up in the area that you did um, grow up in? Was there was there a lot of musical influence from your family or your friends or the school that you grew up in? Like, how did how did music come into your I guess your life mate I, I was just spoiled ridiculously spoiled in terms of music I, I had so many influences so many areas of my life that contained you know different styles of music as well so there was I was kind of introduced to a broad range from an early age uh, my nan was probably the first influence so, so she li- lived uh, with us and she introduced me to big band jazz when I was was very young, and that kind of inspired me to, to pick up the trumpet. That was the first instrument I began learning when I was about eight, I think. And then my, you know, my parents and there's no musicians, so to speak, in my family, but you know, certainly music lovers. And my parents introduced me to all sorts. I guess the main thing would be Motown. My dad was a DJ actually, primarily like Northern Soul, um, Motown. And so, you know, I have very fond memories of just like rooting through his his boxes and boxes of, of records as a kid. And then, yeah, our local scene was just, you know, once I kind of hit my early teens, getting into lo- the, the, the local bands and things. Uh, again, I was just spoiled there. We had some amazing like hardcore bands, punk bands, ska, hip hop, uh, drum and bass, house, you know, it was all these flourishing scenes we were lucky enough to watch dubstep grow from its very early beginnings in in south london so yeah just just completely spoiled I, 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 on top of that i studied classical music at 
but not just at school but outside as well so um yeah just all sorts of stuff what, what a psychological head fuck as well and you've ended up in a in a band that you're you're screaming in but you learned trumpet you've got motown you've got uh, the djing side i mean how did you even get to the point of like establishing that this is the or did, did do you still even think potentially that you might even go down a different route with with music because you found this kind of niche pocket where you've had like immense success but you, you know how did you even get to that stage well i i suppose i mean my, yeah my first love of playing music live was was in school orchestras <laughs> so again very different but i think after seeing local bands and touring bands at our little like youth clubs and you know little crappy venues that that we had i just immediately fell in love with visceral like punk i suppose was was you know genres just conveniences for conversation so it was you know when i say punk that brings a certain sound to people's mind but i guess i just mean alternative music but with a punk spirit like you know watching bands and and hearing lyrics that i like you know, as, as a young kid, I didn't quite understand perhaps the the politics behind it or the philosophy or whatever they were singing about, but I could see that there was a real passion. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the obvious example would be a band like Rage Against Machine, you know, like I, as a sort of 14 year old kid, I didn't know about the intricacies of like South American politics or some of the, you know, some of the songs that, that, that he was singing, but I could tell there was like, some serious righteous indignation there and I was like re- I found that so alluring and so interesting and I, I always I think knew straight away that if I was going to be in a band especially like a band that's like playing energetic dynamic music it, it would I would have to be singing about things that I like really believed in like I, for, for me like integrity was so important and I suppose yeah I suppose that's that's just from being introduced to like hardcore punk from that age. So that's how I sort of began a band that was within that sound. Because before before that, as a kind of 11, 12 year old, I, uh, I was in bands that basically played Britpop. <laughs> so with Chris and Rob, who's our bassist and, and drummer, uh, our, our first bands were just like, basically sounded like Oasis or Blur or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I, I was just immediately drawn, I think, by slightly more I don't know what you call it, more extreme or just more intense styles of music as well, as I suppose, you know, most people are when they reach their, their teens. Do you remember what your fir- the first ones that you were listening to? Like, I mean, obviously you said trumpet playing there was a, was a young part. So, I mean, obviously Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis all, all spring to mind. But do you remember like the first ones where you were like, OK, I know that this is kind of uh, an influence from my family perhaps or the type of instrument that i'm playing but you know when you were really experimenting and, and listening to alternative music i don't know I, I i mean i suppose yeah i mean like Rage Against machine radiohead i discovered american hardcore like sick of it all i think were a big a big draw for me yeah, there was all sorts really i, I had my, my brother was massively into muse so i I had their kind of catalogue driven down my neck from an early age as well. Yeah, I think I was just, I was often often drawn to music that was perhaps not just like intense, but also diverse and, and sort of fearless. And I think, yeah, I, think, I, I suppose Rage Against Machine and Radiohead would be, would be sort of the big two. Because I, I think, you know, at that, at that 
age and at that time a lot of my friends were like very much into the whole new metal thing and you know like a you know I listened to like Linkin Park and maybe Limp Biscuit or something but I, I don't think I was as emotionally pulled in to it as I was with perhaps the more the, the sort of subtleties of Radiohead or the 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 real righteous passion of Rage Against Machine. So I think those two are normally the kind of two that I cite as the big, the big players for me. And and Rage, obviously, they just there's the, I mean, there's so much venom in their. Even when you listen to it as a recording, like you just know that they would have been absolutely shouting that at the microphone. Uh, but also, yeah. a, a, you know, as a as a live gig as well. Do you remember the first gig that you went to? I mean, the first gig I went to was at the Milton Keynes Bowl, I think. And it was Oasis. That, that was like my first, you know, proper show, I suppose. Um, whereas before that, I'd only been to like literally my, my local youth club and seen, yeah, local bands. Um, but, I, but also I suppose that a real kind of turning point for me would, uh, would be seeing a, a band called Sixth, um, S-I-K-T-H, our local youth club. And, uh, that they were kind of pioneers really it's it's i don't know what you'd call it tech metal i know they were massively inspirational to the gent scene that came out afterwards and i i think we were just blown away by their not just their intensity but their musicality you know the the it's almost like virtuoso you know guitar playing and drum playing and i think we were immediately we, we were again quite spoiled with our scene in, in in hertfordshire the county that st albans is in we had all sorts of bands within that world who who their the music was very passionate but also very technical you know very thought through and, and just tire, tirelessly kind of interesting and so so that was seeing that live I immediately fell in, in in love with with music that was you know layered and not certainly not <laughs> very far from the middle of the road very far from sort of bubblegum pop yeah, I do wonder about that as well. Like, I mean, people that don't understand the genre uh, that you are, I mean, you, that you're, that you, I mean, pigeonholed in whatever. I mean, I, I don't think there is a way to pigeonholes. I think you really do have a unique sound. And I mean, you would hear the kind of a cappella or the melodic singing that you that you do some in some of the tracks instead of the in some instead of the screaming. And have you ever thought like have you ever had any feedback from? I'm, I'm thinking of someone like your nan or your or your mum, where they were like, "Oh, Rao, instead of the screaming, why don't you just sing a ballad?" Oh, oh of course. I mean, that's the that's the classic line from my mum uh, from day one. Really, yeah. I, I suppose there's not much sort of there's not much of a com- comparison that someone from that generation can make you know there's sort of early soul records that you know because like- even if you think about the the some of the bands that were actually playing then as well i mean i don't know if you've seen the documentary a band called death have you uh no you should definitely watch it because it's, it's really great and it's about these these guys in the i think it was 70s or 80s where everyone was playing um <laughs> Basically, they they grew up in a black neighborhood. Everyone was playing Motown in that era, 
and they wanted to play uh, basically metal or hardcore music and they didn't uh, i mean it's similar to rodriguez i guess it's it's like uh, or uh, return for sugar man uh, or hunting for sugar man whatever it's called they didn't actually make their success until they were really late on and um in their their years like in their 50s or 40s or 50s because no one was listening to that type of music in their genre which is really difficult when when you when you do try and i guess for you when you try and explain it to your family sometimes it might um not they might not understand it yeah yeah i just yeah they have no experience no connection no sort of perspective on it i suppose they don't they don't really yeah it's just so hard to understand yeah the the guy, the guy i was looking for was like the only thing i can think of was sort of someone who's often thought of as the first person to to scream on record which is screaming jay hawkins yeah it was an incredible like american singer songwriter from sort of did he do us put a spell on you yes yes he did yes and so i suppose when yeah when you've got like no no yeah just no experience of 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 that kind of thing then yeah you're just you're just not not gonna understand it Um, whereas i think now like it's so prevalent in 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 music and you know it's 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 almost uh people of of my generation now will will understand it whether they like it or not they'll 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 kind of understand it at least um but yeah i I suppose like our you know luckily our music has always been so broad that there's certainly at least three or four tracks on each album that that my my mum could listen to without going (laughs) seriously why do you have to scream Did you? Has she? She's been. To, I'm assuming she's been to some of your gigs. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. She, you know, she was always immensely supportive. And I think about you know, I I presume this is a, a universal, but like mums can be brutal. You know, like they're just honest. And I think that's just, that's just great. Like I'll never want my mum to to be anything but that. So she, you know, she She's very analytical of of all the music, all our music, you know, not not just the vocal delivery. So it's yeah, it's uh, yeah. Have you you ever got off there like a new track or whatever, and she's just been like, "What the fuck was that?" Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's she's yeah, (laughs) she's not liked lyrics. She's not like yeah, certain textures or certain yeah, whole whole songs. Yeah, but you know, surprisingly, my mum isn't my um sort of main demographic <laughs> <laughs> that's right you've you've heard it out here this is mums is not the is not the demographic i mean the your how would you actually define the band because i mean if you, even if you do like a quick google search i mean you can see so many different ways that people are trying to i mean do you want to be pigeonholed or or do you uh, like that that you're kind of I mean, alternative is almost pigeonholing, but I mean, what do you, how do you define the band? Um, I mean, I've gone through various stages of like, you know, getting frustrated about the the genres that have, that we've been called to try and trying to uh, present the media with the, the genre that we are like making up our own. And I think now I just I just don't care. <laughs> it's like I, I just it, it, I don't see it as my it's not within my purview. You know, it's not it's not my it's not within my job description to tell people what music we make. It's my job to make the music, and people can describe it in any which way they like. But I think you know it's it, 
the problem the problem in inverted commas with our music is it's too broad it, it, the the palette we draw from is simply too big people could be you know confused to think that they've spotify has just randomly skipped to another artist or something do you know what i mean so it's i think that's all it's 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 kind of uniquely been our strength but also has certainly limited us you know like in a world where people like consistency our music takes quite a lot of effort to get into because it's so dynamic and it's so, you know, it's veering off down odd paths all the time uh, and making quite unexpected jolts in direction. And, and I, you know, they, you can only ever sort of poke your head into the mainstream every now and then, which is what we've managed to achieve, but you can never really assert yourself in the mainstream because the mainstream doesn't have the the sort of patience, I think, for it. So yeah, I, I, I've never really attempted to to describe it. I, th- I think that the best art is art that sort of mirrors experience and and humanity and life in all of its you know infinite variety. Uh, and that's what we try and and do with our music. That there's every emotion. Well, not every emotion, but you know as many emotions as as, as we can muster are conveyed in our music and and i think that's that's what keeps it interesting and 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 real for us and i think you're some of your some of your songs they actually like it's actually really obvious in terms of the message i guess and and when you're talking about like i mean we were talking about your mum and your nan before about like they might not like the music but you can i think there's a lot of people if they really just look at what the message is and how you're trying to convey it i mean that in itself is quite obvious in some of your tracks like you might not necessarily like the like some of it but you you can certainly appreciate what the message that you're trying to bring across is yeah i mean i guess you know some of it's almost it's obvious just from the music you know just from the way that the music is diverse therefore we we we're celebrating diversity you know and and we we've been sort of bludgeoned into thinking that diversity is is a problem whereas it, it can be a, a massive strength um so i think you know some of the the aspects of our sort of political outlook or whatever philosophical philo- philosophical outlook are obvious just from the way the music is crafted but i think you know for us it's always been unity that's a kind of central theme that's that was there from from day one the fact that as musicians, we get to wield these tools of, of community and unity. That's something that, you know, music has has been that for, for centuries, for millennia. It's been something that's brought us together, be that around a campfire or a music festival, you know, nowadays. So it's it's something that we're immensely proud to then speak about, I suppose, and promote, because it, it's something that we feel is like, it's it's innate within the experience of music. It, it, you know, it reminds us that we're all vulnerable to to music. We're all going to feel an emotion from something. It's like a di- dictatorship to some to some extent. And um and that emotion that music makes us feel reminds us that we're all essentially the same. And you know, in a world that's getting increasingly divided, uh, uh, it, it's something that we 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 take at least a small amount of joy in in you know having the opportunity to to be spreading you know the things that the the ideas and the and the kind of compassion i suppose that we that we're trying to to spread 
I mean, you mentioned there as well the, the the fact that you it's not up to you to decide what other people think of you. Do you think that as you're getting older that you're that you've actually become to care not care, but I, I guess care less, but I, I guess it's it's for the haters uh, that that really kind of like shit on the music is is that you really just kind of be like, well, I mean, don't listen to it then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it, how that that does seem to be a universal that, co- that comes with age. You sort of, when you're young, you're so caught up in every little criticism, uh, you know, goes right to your heart, you know, even by complete strangers. <laughs> and I think, yeah, as you get older, you begin to, I think some logic kicks in, but there's also that, you know, emotional reaction begins to lessen and i think you begin to realize that the classic thing you're not going to please everyone if you are pleasing everyone your music is probably exceptionally banal yeah it's essentially lift music or as tom york described it fridge buzz so i think yeah it's pleasing everyone you're i think you're doing something wrong or you're you're essentially thinking of music as a as a comforting thing, as a, a as something that shouldn't really stick out and take your attention. It should just be there, and you know that's that's fine. But for me, music is it's a way of creating both comfort and discomfort because I think there's importance in both. I think you know when we get too comfortable, we become quite thoughtless. We you know we're set in our ways. We don't question things anymore. And and so yeah, I think I think there's a there's a balance there that that needs to be striked. I guess one of the things that are you, that they're even just looking over the numbers on kind of Spotify and Shikari really does. It's just been really consistent in terms of the numbers. We've not one. I mean, there is one dominating hit, I guess, from from your your repertoire. But I guess for for mostly like the numbers are really consistent. And we we've spoken a few to a few people in the podcast where they're, they've got this one hit that's been huge and the others have kind of felt a little bit deflated, whereas you actually have this consistency with you as well. It must be an enviable thing to other musicians to see as well. What do you think that is down to to keep producing records or songs on albums that actually still get the numbers? I mean, it, it's something I'm so grateful for. Um, you know, I I know many bands who, uh, you know, have to perform a, a certain album, you know, in their career, or they have to their live set has to, you know, a massive chunk of their live set has to be that album. They have to play this song and this song, and if they don't, they're going to cause a riot, you know. <laughs> and we, yeah, we luckily seem to have avoided that, which is, yeah, I would be so frustrated if 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 I was, uh, you know, commercially forced. To, to remain in one era of our sort of artistic output forever. I think there's a few things. I think, first of all, just being essentially a band that has remained fairly DIY, fairly like self-contained, self-controlled. That means we don't have to rush anything out. We don't have to put out an album to uh, to meet the stipulations of a, a major label contract. So we've never had to just you know, put things out that we're not happy with. Like my, uh, well, our, our band's like quality control process is pretty rigorous. You know, our, our the, the trash bin on on my computer is is used a lot, and 
I, I, you know, I, I do think we're lucky in in that in that way because we we could have easily just like gone the ma- a major label route, and uh, you know, obviously this is a bit it's a bit reductive. Just to, you know, some major labels are great and they give great big deals to their bands, um, but I think we we luckily never were forced into a route where you know we had to give away some some element of control or give away some element of of our the timing of our releases and things so so yeah essentially our our output has always been like consistently i like to think of of a, of a decent quality i think also because it's the music is it's always progressing you never really quite know what to expect from us so it, in the very least even if you don't like it it's interesting so i think that that helps give us some form of longevity you know there's there's lots of bands who essentially produce the same album again and again um and and you know some artists some bands are incredibly successful doing it that way but i think it, it it's very easy to to you know lose interest um as a fan in that in that way unless you're just in it purely for the again for the comfort blanket for the nostalgia for oh yeah this reminds me of that last album they did in that time of my life which you know they're, they're all wonderful feelings but i i prefer to sort of make memories than, than you know just be like dousing yourself and, and marinating yourself in, <laughs> in older memories yeah I, there's definitely a, a few other like smaller reasons but i guess they're the the, the main two for me that I, and i think you i think your fans i think the one of the things you know i don't take all my knowledge of enter shikari because i do actually listen to you as well but i don't take all my knowledge from my cousin sammy but a shout out to sammy who is a massive fan of yours but she's been consistent. She's consistently stayed like listening to the music. So you guys have uh, have evolved over time, but she's consistently listened to the music. Does does that resonate with you in terms of fans? Yeah, uh, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm when I you know really think about this, and it's, especially if I'm having conversations with people who have been there, uh, you know, through thick and thin with us, like it it is it's incredible and i'm so so grateful for it. it it's like um it's like you know many people have just like grown up with us and and you know different albums have, have seemed to have hit in the same way that a lot of the time i'm writing about my life and my life experiences it, of course if you're of a, a similar generation you're going to have similar experiences so it's it's amazing then that people you know we have people saying that the our albums like the sort of soundtrack to their lives and stuff and you know obviously every artist has has you know really passionate like dedicated fans who have that and it's 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 a wonderful thing you know to to feel so supported yeah and and, and the fact that they've stayed with us so long is is amazing because a lot of the time you know people will have a couple of albums or, and and then they'll kind of you know, once they get a job or whatever, that, that or have kids, they they won't even have as as much time in their lives to listen to music, to discover new music. So yeah, I, we're we're essentially grateful for what is, I guess, just people's attention um, and support. But I'd love to see that. I'd love to see like a CEO of Coca Cola or something that's really like you know drag themselves up and then still secretly is listening to Ender Shikari. <laughs> <laughs> do you i think that one of the things that i was just i was listening to this the other day and um i know rock lovers are gonna absolutely come at me and not and, and hate it but 
you remember A, uh, the band A, nothing, <laughs> kind of the test of time? But, I mean, you've won so many Kerrang! awards as well. I was looking up there and, you know, there's people that haven't lasted that longevity. You know, I probably listened to that thinking, oh, my God, this band's going to be around for years and years to come. But you have, as I say, you were talking about the consistency, you know, that you've won numerous Kerrang! awards, you know, every year or you've been there or thereabouts. Is there... Any that kind of mean more to you than others? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, but I, I will say, yeah, I, you know, amazing, amazing band. I actually saw them live um, two, two, week, two weeks ago. Uh, they, yeah, they did a reunion, still reunion show. Yeah, well, yeah, oh. sort of a reunion thing at Slam Dunk Festival here. Yeah, in, in, wow. down in Hatfield. Yeah, it was incredible. I, I, yeah, I've had a funny sort of relationship with awards. You know, early on, I was, I had the, you know the classic sort of team i don't know what it was what sort of a philosophical elitism like our oh, awards don't mean nothing they're just people's opinions the same with like you know reviews uh, record reviews and live reviews and stuff and i was i was quite dismissive but the, you know <laughs> there's no still if you win one there's you can't shy away from the, the feeling that you get of like recognition uh, you know and validation <laughs> that comes from it <laughs> So it's yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think just being, you know, just being like recognised, especially now, over the last like eighteen months, where we've had our connection to our fan base dramatically limited. You know, I haven't been able to speak face to face with with fans. It's meant that my uh, my kind the validation that I would normally get. You know, if we were on tour, I'd be getting it every night. It's wonderful. Uh, that that's just completely was taken away from me. So I think you know I I, I won um, best uh, produ- uh, best production for the the last album. So as a producer who's had you know I've only become a, a producer in the last sort of four year four or five years really, and I should have done it a lot earlier. But you know imposter syndrome and lack of confidence and things. So to win an award as a producer for our last album, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, um, that was incredible. And especially after so long of not having recognition, not being able to speak to people face to face, you know, see the passion in their eyes, like hear them speak about your music and and hearing what bits connected with them in this way and that way and reminded them of what. And, you know, having these in-depth conversations, like taking that away was like really horrible. That was probably one of the biggest difficulties I, I had with the, with the pandemic, I speak about it like it's it's history, but of course it's still very much ongoing. But yeah, so so I think that that recent award was was a, a really good one for me. So that was the Heavy Music Awards here in the UK. But but yeah, the, I don't know. I, I you know albums like the the best album for the Spark for Kerrang that was our, our not our most recent album, the one before that that was incredible to get because it was such a different album for us. You know, it really was a. I've talked earlier about how, how our music goes off in different directions, but the spark was a much kind of subtler, lighter, uh, more minimal album, but but an incredibly emotional one as well. You know, it was a very personal album. So so to win best album for that was 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 incredible. And you mentioned there as well, like I mean, it's it's going to be with mixed feelings that you've kind of been through all these situations. I wonder if how has that felt 
being in this situation that you were mentioning with not being able to be with the fans. Is there any positives or, or actually probably more appreciation that you've gained for what you possibly haven't had? Oh, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's, a class, it's classic human psychology, isn't it? You take something away and you're like, oh, Jesus, I've really needed that. Or like, you know, you, your estimation of it dramatically goes up because you realise what life is like without it. You know, essentially for for the last 18 months, I've sort of been a ghost witnessing the death of my own band. You know, like I, I've I've sort of had some sense of what it would be like if our band stopped for some reason or, or, or you know, if we split up or or became completely irrelevant or, or something, you know, just basically feeling completely impotent. You're like not being able to to perform and that actually made me not be able to write so for you know the first time really in my life I I uh, until these last few weeks we as I said we're, we're away writing now but um I hadn't written any music and and that was that's never happened before normally I often describe it it's just like a tap and I my brain's always coming up with stuff and I'm my my conscious self is just there with a bucket to to capture the the water um, and then kind of filter it or whatever the weird analogy would end up being. But yeah, so so I think the the gratitude that we have when that we will feel when we tour again. We we played one show. We played a pilot gig uh, two months ago now at the Download Festival pilot. Basically, it was the first kind of you know government sponsored scheme to see how live music could work and and that was you know obviously just completely surreal to to, to play to be in a field again with ten thousand people um but it but it was just such a tease you know it's like oh god now we've got to wait another few months our, our tour here is, is in december um which is obviously fast approaching but um yeah i think i think we're going to just feel immense just gratitude for what we have you know as a band that, that that's been going for over 15 years now and, and 15 be able to, years to still, some people would love like that's that's a crazy uh, it's yeah it's incredible and, and and you know to still be going sort of from strength to strength really or, or as you say just at least having a sense of like consistency and not really a feeling that our our relevance is waning is is, is incredible and um yeah as i say i, th- I think we're being able to realize that again in a, in a live scenario is is going to be just so so heartwarming and And what is and what has it been has it been seven albums now yes i think sounds about right is there one that was more pivotal to the band's success i don't know it's interesting i mean you know the the first one in many ways could have gone very wrong like we recorded it in two weeks which thinking about that now is insane (laughs) and yeah, because the recording process has just changed so much and we've become so, you know, much more uh, involved in it and everything, especially in the production. But, you know, if we had got that wrong, you, we would have certainly not had have had the, the, the lease of life that we've had. Um, but I, I reckon in a, in a sort of more shrouded, deeper sense is possibly the second album that was the most important, simply because it was so different to the first. I think that it immediately it sort of gave us a sense of control, like to destroy people's expectations that early. It was like, no, fuck you. Like, we're not going to 
be what you think we're going to be. Um, and especially back then when, you know, so many bands were releasing albums that sounded in, in, incredibly similar. And, you know, the fact that we were even even had synths and electronic music influences within a, a sort of punk rock a foundation, you know, that was even like massively frowned upon back then. So to expand on that in our second album, I, I think that was probably what gave us a, a, a real sense of like, control of, of our destiny and like i think eventually people respected it did the second one give you like a bigger reach as well to, to bigger things uh, i th- yeah i think it's certainly musically um you know it, it, it was a in some ways it was a disaster because it was the it's the only album that we've basically attempted to <laughs> yeah i say attempted because it, it, it they completely messed up the release but it's the only album that attempted to be released on a major label and it 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 didn't work at all so in america it, it it's it, by quite a long way our, our our worst sort of performing album but it was so strange because at the same time the shows were getting bigger and bigger and more and more people were coming <laughs> um it was a very odd album you know there was a sense of like not quite failure you know but like a sense of oh we've we've got this wrong it's certainly on, on a technical stance of, of the release of it but at the same time the the music was getting more and more like accolades and and yeah and, and more and more people were coming onto it so yeah it was it was a really weird time has there been any like of your like favorite stage moments or gigs that you've you've played at like i'm thinking people that you might have maybe even supported or even when you got to the uh, I guess the biggest audience that you've ever played. Is there any of those favourite stage moments that you've had? Oh yeah, I mean, so many. Um, like picking your favourite child. Yeah, I mean, so some of the early like, wow, you know, experiences as a as a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed mm. like kid uh, was playing our first arena tours where we were supporting bands that were doing that massive european arena tours so like you know we we got to tour with lincoln park with prodigy just you know meeting meeting and touring with the prodigy i guess was our first like absolutely just wow moment and the, and the gigs on that tour was so incredible um, and we got to play with them again a few few years later they did a, a massive festival uh, again at the milton Keynes bowl actually it was the venue i mentioned earlier that i saw oasis at and so, you know, even to play that, which was the, the, the first sort of venue I went to and, and be supporting The Prodigy, which was one of the absolutely pivotal bands for us, I think, in terms of, you know, a, a, a real solid influence. Yeah, that, that was just an incredible experience. I, I think as well, like we, we'd had some experiences of, of bands being seemingly you know, unfriendly or just a bit standoffish or assholes, or, you know, it obviously got too big for their boots and uh, didn't want to even talk to support bands and stuff like that. And obviously not going to name any names, but with the, with the prodigy, like Keith came into our dressing room, like on the first day and just like, you know, we had a beer together and we're talking about music and life and everything. And I think that was, it was quite shocking to us because, you know, he, he was a, a celebrity and, and to be still have such a sense of, like humility and friendliness and yeah that that that, that was amazing so I, I think that went some way to to keep encouraging us to, to not become our souls basically you know yeah to keep our feet on the ground and, and and always 
never you know that the the stage is just there so people can see us it's not there to raise us up as human beings or anything like that i think that you know it really solidified that that sense of, of togetherness that has been central to our philosophy as a band and i mean you you actually read you can read any anything about i mean you can read about potentially who's an asshole and there might be a couple of uh, stories about it and you think it might have just been in like an off day but everything you seem to read about about keith is just that he was it just a, a dude? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I, I I can corroborate that from 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 our experiences. Yeah, who's a legend? And you you mentioned Lincoln Park there as well, and and this is something that I've always wondered. And I I mean maybe it's uh, not completely not true, but I mean Chester from Lincoln Park. You you hear about some punk or rock bands? I think that he was one of those. But you know they the lead singers uh, of of those types of bands where you really do have to get that kind of gravelly like get it really get it out of you. They you know drink certain fluids like milk or to help their voice get that sound do you have like a ritual before uh you go on stage or not really I've, I've often found that the you know the various drinks and you know old wives tales and things that you that help you with your voice just don't really work uh, that there's one yeah apart from one exception which is a, a chinese sort of throat medicine which is is really good as a throat coat we use when we're you know when our throats are feeling ragged halfway through a tour but yeah no I, all we do is 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 just kind of limber up really you know i do some yoga o- often tour means you're you're just kind of sitting on a bus all day or you're kind of trapped backstage or something so it's good to kind of get the blood moving but that, and that, that's kind of it really we put on some some loud music get the adrenaline going and yeah out of all of the genres that you can think of, I'd imagine it'd be really hard to, you know, even if you had like a slight cold or something like that, I'd imagine it's really difficult to come out on stage and still be able to perform like that. Yeah, I think, well, for, for me, the, for years, I struggled with hay fever, uh, with allergies. It was like, I, I, got, I got it really intensely. And to sing when you basically can't breathe through your nose is very, very difficult. Um, and especially when you're you're like us, you're very energetic on stage. Yeah, that that, that was tough, and it, you know it sort of constricts your throat slightly as well. So it's uh, I went through some some difficult periods there. But yeah, it, it feels sort of cliche, but honestly, like usually the adrenaline, especially if you're doing like a festival or something, you walk out and you see the mass of people, that kind of makes you forget everything else. Like if you're suffering any ailments, be they physical or or mental, you know, like certainly lots of experiences of being like halfway through a massive tour and just being you know missing home and being sleep deprived and just full of anxiety or what you know whatever's going on in my life it can be really tough but either looking out and seeing a mass that does it but also locking eyes with one person like just getting the eye contact that it's a very visceral human connection i think that also helps you just just live in the moment and and concentrate on what you're doing um, and, and gets you through the shows that are perhaps perhaps more difficult. Yeah, I mean, a, a bit of a, a segue, but we did kind of talk about this at the beginning of the podcast as well. Is that you know the 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 love of, I guess the the writing. Like when you look at the books, uh, some of the books that you've you've written. If you actually do look at them on some of the 
stores that sell them. You know, one of them I actually had, it come up with, you know, that, you know, eBay has it as well, where, you know, you might like this because you've looked at this. It's, it was like Sally Rooney, normal people, the silent patient and emotional intelligence by Daniel uh, Goldman as well. I mean, do you, what did you want to get from writing the books that you did and, and, and uh, who do you draw inspiration from? Well, I suppose it started off purely as something that I feel would satisfy me as the kind of intense fan of music that I am and and lyrics that I am. So, you know, I, I was basically writing sort of a book that had, I guess, essays for each track. So for anyone that wanted to delve into the, you know, the inspirations, the meanings behind the lyrics, the ambitions behind the songs, the, the books were there for for you know I, I I understand it's only probably going to be like twenty percent of our fan base that really wants to delve in and know all the details about everything but but that was me or that is me you know as a music fan and that was certainly me as a as a, as a kid as a you know when music was was everything as as a teenager and I think then it just blossomed out so 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 my last book is. I, I suppose when you're, you're you're a band that writes about such sort of deep, broad subjects, there's there's only so much detail you can get into like a three four minute like pop structured rock song. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's, you can't really say a great deal. So, and I always remember getting a an album review from one of the broadsheet papers here in the UK that was basically kind of berating it for 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 our philosophy being somewhat minimal i suppose or or reductive and i was like oh, how are you how are you supposed to you know release your philosophical opus when you're just confined to these to to, to like pop structured music so so yeah the last book is like just basically delves into sort of my outlook you know on life on politics and philosophy and and it does that by kind of taking apart the last album and it goes through the songs and it, and it looks at the far future it looks at the history of our species you know it goes into all these uh fascinating aspects of of, of life and it was a it was a joy to write and a, a total bastard to research <laughs> it took a, took a long time but yeah I was, I was so that that basically became my pandemic sort of creative outpost really <laughs> Or, or outburst that was the thing that i concentrated on all, all of last year uh so, so it was great to have that that one kind of thing just to to, to throw myself into because obviously um you know writing is is a very solitary thing anyway so i was forced into being a hermit as we all were so so it was um, managed to knuckle down and just and write that book i mean you were talking about the politics side of stuff as well there is uh, and and I know that you've you've had that with the political and social change as well. You know the, the climate change, mental health, and and there's a lot of stuff that you've done which is just incredible. But I mean everything else somehow is linked to music, and I know that music is all-consuming sometimes. But do you have any other interests outside of um, music? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. As you say, you know, my my life usually is so based around music in in, in every sense, but. Yeah, the the last eighteen months is is you know living the life of of a researcher as an as an author. I'm actually can't wait to, to be uh, getting back to just being a musician again because it, it certainly was intense and difficult. But yeah, I I 
I think as a creative, you have to be fascinated by everything. You have to somehow retain the the sort of humanity, really, the the natural creativity that is with within all of us, and the natural curiosity. And I think that's the best way to create good art is just to be curious about everything and, and delve into everything. I think if I wasn't a musician, I'd probably would like to be within psychology. I just find that immensely interesting. Neuroscience as well, like just you know how the brain works for someone someone whose brain is annoying and weird and at the best of times, uh, as is most people's in all different ways, um, with, with all our idiosyncrasies. I, I just find it fascinating learning about human behavior, basically. Uh, and, and then nature, I suppose. You know, I was, I was lucky to be brought up with, you know, parents that, that had a real uh, love of, of nature. I lived in Scotland for a few years and just love immersing myself in it and learning about it. And I suppose then there's there's gent there's there's sort of ethical things that come out of that. So veganism. That's enough. That's enough to be getting on with. Um, just don't add yeah. any more to that because there's enough for you <laughs> to be getting on with in your life, Ralph. <laughs> yeah. We we're coming to the end of the episode. I just want to ask you one more question. Just I I I did read an article about you know you praising. Uh, grime music and I know it's, it's something that we've I've I, I love I love all t- similar to you I love all genres of of music you know I can listen to the 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 metal but I can also listen to classical but I mean grime for me I feel like is really going for a resurgence and somewhat and I wondered you know I, re- I read that you did you know have uh, a, a like for 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 grime and and I think if I'm not paraphrasing I think you did call it in some way you know the, the future of music and I wondered if, you know, who do you think is, uh, not necessarily in grime, but who do you think is the next kind of up and coming or, you know, even if it's just a genre, like what do you think is kind of the next evolution of uh, of music, do you think? Well, yeah, I, I thought grime, certainly for a sense a few years ago, felt like the new punk. You know, it was, it was very DIY, it was very full of integrity, full of passion. It was interesting, you know, rhythmically, lyrically. There was, there was so much stuff. And yeah, it's, it's obviously still going. I don't know why I'm speaking about it in the past tense. But for me, the the two or two artists within Grime that probably aren't as big as they should be would be Big Zoo and Novelist. Being a, being a fan of them for, for a long time, I think I think they're sick. And then, yeah, genres in the yeah, future... Future I mean, Big Zoo's, got the per- Big Zoo's got the personality to back it up as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, what some of our one of our funnest recording experiences was was doing our track with Big Nasty, who he's just like a joy to be around. I think we'll, you know we'll continue seeing something that I think you know we had a, a little, little small part in playing, which is kind of the downfall of, of of rigid genres. I think we're seeing it in pop. Pop is so inspired and nourished by underground niche you know new interesting sounds and genres you know to a certain extent it always has been but i think increasingly so um so yeah i think we'll just keep seeing people putting sounds and ideas and and instruments together that haven't been put together and i think it will be increasingly normalized and you know i I suppose that a good example of that is hyperpop at the moment which seems to be this becoming such a almost like a meme now but you know ha- having music that is incredibly dynamic 
you know, high tempo, interesting, odd. It, it's becoming sort of more accepted in the mainstream. So, yeah, it's just really, really interesting times. Brown Reynolds, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and I really do appreciate you taking the time and I'm hoping that the music that you're creating now is is going to be out as soon as we can uh, blink because I think new music is, is definitely uh, needed but do really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. This episode of the 212 Podcast was edited by Podlike. We provide expert editing and production for podcasts and content creators. Find us at podlike.online.